Welcome to Works in Theory Podcast, uh, the podcast where we read theory so you don't have to. My name's Nate, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Tom and Alicia. Hello, I'm Tom. I'm Alicia. And today we are going to be finishing up uh, two works by David Graeber. Uh, this is the second episode on the Graeber Notes, so if you haven't listened to the first, uh, you're missing out on a lot. Uh, basically, we're going to cover the last couple sections that we wanted to talk about in Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology. And uh, then we're going to quickly go over the small essay, Are You an Anarchist? The answer might surprise you. Yeah, you're going to want to stick around for that because you want to get surprised. Yeah. Who knows? You might be an anarchist listening to this. And there's no way you'll know unless you stay till the end. Exactly. There's like, there's, you know, you you might take a different test. This is the test. This is the one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the first part of fragments that I wanted to talk about that I don't think we touched on last time. He talks about a theory of the state and of things that are not states. And so, like, you know, as anarchists, I find, I figure we're talking about the state a lot. Um, it's hard to sort of think of what a definition of a state is exactly. Uh, you know, it's something like a bunch of people sharing a culture and a language and I guess maybe an economy, like living under the same government. I don't know. What do you guys think? You think that's a, a workable definition? Yeah, I, I think maybe something also with force. I feel like there's there's often kind of the component of with the ability to control people through force. Yeah. Yeah, the monopoly on violence is exactly. sometimes called. Yeah, so that's uh that's the quick works in theory rundown of what a state is. Um but what Graeber wants to talk about is actually uh that maybe not all of the things that we typically think of as states are states. Uh and he wants to sort of shake us loose of like a statist mindset where we think that we basically, whenever we cast a glance, uh, you know, to the past, uh, to look at ancient societies, we tend to just see states, you know, uh, like nation states as as they have existed since, uh, you know, the 19th century or whatever. Um, but really, like up until recently, that isn't how human societies were organized at all. Um, and he wants to like he takes the example of uh, of like a king. Basically, when we say like, oh, this was this king's kingdom. We are kind of just taking him at his word. Uh, but, like, did he actually have, like, a monopoly of violence? Did he actually have, like, the coercive power that a state has over and, that whole area? And the everyday impact on everybody in his kingdom as well, in the way that, I mean, I guess there there are definitely arguments that most of power and control the state claims doesn't actually affect us every single day. But, but there still are definitely aspects of living the modern western state that we all are in i need to scratch this entire thing i think you're i think you're right no i think that's right so it's like so if we were to like walk out the if i was to walk out my front door today like it would not be very far before i saw the fingerprints of the united states government right right or you know in your case the canadian government whoever's in charge up there yeah whoever it is <laughs> um so i think i'm gonna take uh, the liberty of quoting Graeber a little bit at length here. He says that uh, we tend to assume that states and social order, even societies, largely correspond. In other words, we have a tendency to take the most grandiose, even paranoid claims of world rulers seriously. 
assuming that whatever cosmological projects they claim to be pursuing actually did correspond, at least roughly, to something on the ground. Whereas, it's likely that in many such cases, these claims ordinarily only applied fully within a few dozen yards of the monarch in their direction, and most subjects were much more likely to see ruling elites on a day-to-day basis as something much along the lines of predatory raiders. And, you know, I've heard this... uh, this sort of conception of like ancient societies and how they're different than nation states before, where it's, uh, it's, you know, we sort of think of like your average peasant in, you know, whatever, uh, eighth century Europe or whatever, like knows what kingdom they're a part of, but really like, they don't like think of, they weren't necessarily thinking of themselves as citizens of a kingdom the same way we think of ourselves as Americans or Canadians. Like, the kingdom, like they found out whose kingdom they were in when somebody with swords showed up to demand money from them. It's like, oh, okay, that's the king. That whole that whole thing, I I I think I particularly keep saying, uh, history is written by the victor, sort of thing, and that's what we're seeing. I think here, you know, we look through records. Records are kept by the king, maybe the people in his kingdom, like maybe the people very close within his, you know, within the monarchy, are keeping records. They're going to want to make them look like we're powerful, we're very strong, and we're doing good things. They're not going to be like, we occasionally show up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, they want to portray, like, the idea that they have just homogenous power over this whole area. Um, But, you know, I I just, I remember the scene from uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where King Arthur shows up, and he's like, uh, like, who are you? Well, I'm your king. I'm king of the Britons. Who are the Britons? You know, it's like... (laughs) It, I don't know. It's, it, you know, without, I don't know. I, you know, you can imagine mass travel without mass communication. Like, yeah, you wouldn't have that same cohesion that you have today. Yeah. It's really interesting to think about, uh, you know, someone that is without a motor vehicle it is really hard to get information without telephones, motor vehicles. Uh, everything is basically hearsay. Everything is basically letters that take days that, you know, and are only sent really when it makes sense to, because it's just hard to get information out. That's what I kind of imagine it would be like. And so your news is all filtered down through um, weird random gossip rags or something that you're just hearing about people. I've been watching a lot of this show Bridgerton on Netflix. <laughs> it's terrible. Okay. <laughs> it's terrible and it's great. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that show. <laughs> what we were talking about there about what it may have been like to live in a kingdom like we're describing here where um you might like you were saying Tom the news trickles down and kind of isn't very relevant to your day to day I remember hearing a statistic like before cars were really widespread or or horses or I don't know however people walk around or got places you'd only go like 30 miles from your hometown in your entire lifetime and so any news outside of that circle is not really relevant and like that's that statistic would be or that would be the experience of you know everyone in your hometown so you'd structure your life so that the most important things are within that radius and yeah. anything else that kind of drops in isn't going to be as relevant. Yeah, absolutely. And you can imagine, you know, from the other side, like if the king is not able to travel very far, very fast, you know, with his bureaucrats or whatever, like how much control over the day-to-day life can he really have over people? So just by that, the way that we conceive of states now and the control that somebody 
you know, thousands of kilometers away from us, thousands of miles away from us. <laughs> I'm going to say dumb it down it, from the U.S., please. <laughs> <laughs> kilometers. <laughs> it's kilometers. We use both. It depends. There's anyway. <laughs> oh, I just learned that today. Miles sound smoother. But I feel like, um, you know, our experience with living in a state where somebody can remotely control your life, we read that onto what we see in history as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that is probably Graber's point here is like similar to some of the breaking down barriers stuff we talked about last time. His point here, I think, is to say, like, listen, states aren't eternal either. In fact, like they're a pretty recent thing. And like it's not inevitable that humans live under this like system of sort of like total control and total surveillance that we live under now because you got to figure you know those people those medieval peasants who the king couldn't get to very often to control every aspect of their lives they're probably just largely running their own lives you know them and their community and i guess we uh we even read a little bit about that in mutual aid didn't we about the, the medieval cities and things like that yeah that basically occasionally the king's uh, troops would like show up and the people would be like, are you here to fuck with us? Or are you here to like, <laughs> to, uh, Hey, I just got our explicit. Are you here to, are you, are you here to fuck with us? Or are you here to like, uh, <laughs> you know, to just, to just kind of like groove, groove along with what Flowers we're doing. Flowers or swords here, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I just, I can't get that image out of my head. of just like, people have always been putting daisies and guns and like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, did did anybody else have any last things they wanted to say on states or things that aren't states? Most things weren't states, but us living in states now, if we look at it and we say, yes, they were definitely all states and states are eternal and they will last forever and they have lasted forever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, in particular, he wants to point out that the two uh, like previous societies that we most uh, think of as precursors to our own. Uh, classical Athens and medieval England were probably not states. Yeah, and he makes a pretty good point here about how the things that don't correspond super well to our idea of a state, we end up calling them things like chiefdoms, just weird alternative ideas, usually just kind of like ideas that are more, they, they strike you as more of like, oh, this is like a simpler people or something, right? It just seems like, oh, mm -hmm. they just don't know how to organize themselves like a state. Yeah, it's like that like progressive thing. Like, oh, they're just on like a previous stage and like they're on chief, you know, chiefdom and that's the next, the next stage is state. You're almost yeah. there, you know? <laughs> you just got to work on that a little <laughs> bit longer. Get enough points and you'll upgrade, upgrade yeah, society. Yeah, exactly. Level up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is it? He, he writes, evolutionary anthropologists refer to kingdoms which lack full-fledged coercive bureaucracies as chiefdoms and structures are seen as something which immediately precedes the emergence of the state, not an alternative form or even something a state can turn into. So, it does, you know, we don't think of them as, well, what if that's the next level? Like, what if that's actually the next thing after a state is less state is, is something that's a little less of like a coercive state? Well, if we've peaked at bureaucracy, there's only one way we can go from here, right? <laughs> yeah, we're at the top of the roller coaster, <laughs> cresting the hill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the next section I wanted to talk about was this power and stupidity thing, uh, mostly just because it really tickled me. So he talks about how uh, he wants to sort of like contradict Foucault a little here. Uh, Foucault, who said that, uh, you know, in sort of the modern world, um, and please, if you're an expert on Foucault, do not 
uh, put me on blast for getting this wrong, but something on the lines of like, it's we no longer use like brute violence to control people. It's now like, uh, like knowledge is like how we control people. Graeber takes a little bit of a of exception at that, and he wants to point out that in fact there is quite a bit of violence still around. Um, he talks about like people who say that violence doesn't operate in the world tend to be uh, like egghead professor types stuck in the books. But if they ever tried to go back into the library without their ID card and take the books anyway, they would soon find out that uh, violence was not so far away after all. He ties in another example that reminds me of, of what we read in Kropotkin, having the continuity of our show, having having read Kropotkin before this. If you didn't listen to our episodes on mutual aid, go check them out. <laughs> uh, but just food and how um, the distribution of resources where some people have too much food and it goes to waste and some people are starving is completely normal in our society. But that is absolutely a fundamental violence against people. Yep. Absolutely. Wouldn't have existed uh, without the way that our structure, that our society is structured these days. And if you go and take some food and try to give it to somebody who is hungry, Graber says a man with a big stick will very likely come and hit you. (laughs) Yep. And it's true. Yeah, him pointing out, he just, I think he makes like a very clear picture that I can see in my head very clearly of, you know, the hungry woman standing several yards away from a huge pile of food. Uh, it's just insane that that exists. There might be walls and doors right. in between the, her and that pile of food. But it's it's kind of like arbitrary. It's an arbitrary amount of restriction. The doors aren't yeah. locked. The food's not, you know, tied down. Technically, anyone can take it, but someone will come and hit you with a big stick. Yeah. And, you know, he's he might be a, a little forgetful living in England, as he did at the end of his life. But uh, here in the States, they'll just shoot you. They're not, not going to bother with a stick. Yeah. <laughs> Up here in Canada, we still do sticks. <laughs> <laughs> I think, and, and, and that obviously that depends on maybe the color of the woman's skin. That sort of thing sometimes differentiates between whether you get the stick or you get the, the bullet, which is another... That's a whole other thing that's not really yeah. in this book. Not really about that, but <laughs> I really liked uh, after he talks, after Graeber talks about that part, he talks about how anarchists have always delighted in reminding us uh, of of that person, of the police or the state that's going to come and like destroy your life if you try to steal a, an orange. Um, yeah. Like there's this resident, uh, there's a squatter community in uh, Denmark called Christiana. I think it's called Freetown Christiana. And uh, I, I guess they have like um, a Christmas tide ritual where they dress in Santa suits and take toys from department stores and distribute them to children on the street, partly just so everyone can uh, see the cops come beating Santa Claus and taking toys back from children. Yeah. And, you know, on the one hand, it sounds so silly, like the cops beating Santa Claus and taking to- toys from children. But like, think about it for a second longer. And it's like, well, yeah, that's what they do. Like, what else would they do? I'm not going to let the kids keep the toys if they're stolen. Right. The police aren't there to make sure the children are taken care of. The police are there to make sure the property is. Yep. And honestly, they don't have to care about the kids. And this sort of leads into another um, bit of a longer quote I wanted to, to read here from Graber. He says, talking about that the cops don't have to care about those kids. He says, because violence, particularly structural violence, where all the power is on one side, creates ignorance. 
If you have the power to hit people over the head whenever you want, you don't have to trouble yourself too much figuring out what they think is going on, and therefore, generally speaking, you don't. Hence, the surefire way to simplify social arrangements, to ignore the incredibly complex play of perspectives, passions, insights, desires, and mutual understandings that human life is really made out of, is to make a rule and then threaten to attack anyone who breaks it. This is why violence has always been the favored recourse of the stupid. It is the one form of stupidity to which it is almost impossible to come up with an intelligent response. It is also, of course, the basis of the state. Contrary to popular belief, bureaucracies do not create stupidity. They are ways of managing situations that are already inherently stupid. So, you know, I don't know what else there is to say beyond that. I think that uh, <laughs> it really hits it on the head there. <laughs> I really like that part as well. Because I'd, I'd really never thought about the relationship between, and like, discourse and intelligence and violence. Like, connecting the idea of, like, well, I'm just out of words, so I'm going to hit you. I, you know, I kind of you know, think of that with an argument, maybe, but, like... When you think about the police, I don't think of it as, well, they're out of words, <laughs> but it really is. It's just that the words, like, they haven't been given enough, right? Like, there's not enough that the police, no, I'm not saying we should expand the police. Let me rephrase this. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying, well, we just need to reform them. No, I'm saying that um, they have the wrong kind of discourse, right? They only have a certain kind of discourse, which is to hit you, which is inherently just like you have no intelligent response to that you have no way you know that that's why i think it to a lot of people protests look ridiculous because it's just like well what what do you expect people to say to the police like do you, like when they try to talk to them they still get tear gas like yeah exactly and i mean it's you know it's the same reason that like people get like i don't know i, I get freaked out around cops when i'm not doing anything wrong right it's because like at the end of the day, they're allowed to shoot me if they want. You know, they don't have to think. Yeah, I, I had uh, a thought yesterday when I went to the grocery store. It wasn't even a cop. It was just some, I don't know, a manager or something that was telling me that my shoe was untied as I was leaving. I realized how sketchy I looked because, like, I'm at the grocery store these days in the middle of COVID. Let's just date this a little bit. But, like, uh, we're still kind of in the middle of COVID stuff. And... I'm like, this is terrifying. This could be what kills me. So I'm constantly moving fast, looking around. I'm like, this probably looks like I'm trying to steal stuff because I'm like kind of on high alert all the time. And and anyway, it just made me think of like, you know, when that manager or whatever is like, your shoe is untied. And I'm like, oh, I wonder if he's trying to get to gauge like what I'm, why I'm being this way. <laughs> trying to slow me down, make me run or something. I don't know. Weird, weird, random thought, but it's just, you know, that's how I feel around the police often, also, like, all the time. That's indicative of the hierarchy, I guess, the relationship between people who are presumed to have authority and um, everybody else who's in that particular situation. Uh, it does, I think, tie into a part that Graeber goes into a little later here, where I, you can't, you can't say for sure obviously this manager was <laughs> maybe the manager is a bad yeah. example for this <laughs> but um you know the the idea that you know the manager doesn't have to necessarily consider what your life is like and how it's going or the police don't have to consider how your life is going but a lot of the but we spend a lot of time having to worry about what are they thinking of us yeah totally one of the ways that i always think about things is kind of like a two-way street that like, you know, I imagine that I'm thinking about how other people are doing, what they're going through, 
I, I heard somebody else say this thing. Might have been like a comedian. I can't remember. They're they're talking about you know, you know like somebody cuts you off in traffic and you get really mad. Well, that person might be having like the worst day of their entire lives, and you have no idea, and like you have no way of knowing, and so like you just can't let it get to you because you have to see it from every perspective and you can't see every perspective. And so you just kind of go like, well, that's, you know, just let it slide. Well, when you have, when your perspective is, I need to protect the property here, then like that limits the amount of, of perspectives you're going to really think about. You're not really caring about this person, not me stealing or whatever, like somebody stealing uh, from a grocery store, the, the lady that wants to steal the oranges or whatever. And you're not thinking about that. You're thinking about like, well, these oranges can't leave the store. <laughs> like that's your one track that leads to, well, we better do something violent to stop them because there's no other real perspective or thought that we need to give to this. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So before we move on to, are you an anarchist? Uh, there's just a couple more things I want to talk about in fragments here. Um, he lists what he calls the tenants of a potential anarchist platform. Uh, and he gives three bullet points, and I want to talk about two of them. Uh, the elimination of global equality, uh, the struggle versus work, and democracy. And I want to talk about those last two. Uh, so the struggle versus work, I thought was really interesting. Um, he talks about how like, when we talk about capitalism a lot, we talk about, we're like sort of like thinking about finance and markets and like private ownership of the means of production but like the way most people experience capitalism is like having to go work for a boss nine to five and like really like isn't that one of the worst parts you know it's it's like he always talks about uh like plato would recognize what we're doing as slavery like working for somebody else's ends our entire life and he talks about how like the iww made at least in the 20th century made that like their explicit uh purpose not necessarily like they didn't even I, correct me if I'm wrong, but they didn't even say like we're against capitalism. They said we're against wage labor. That's a very good like perspective too. Like if you don't think about it as like I I I would say that I'm anti-work, right? But like that too, I think a lot of people paints a different picture than probably what I'm thinking of when I say it. But if I'm anti-wage labor, that's a little more specific, and um. Uh, makes it clear that I'm like, no, I'm, I'm against the way that we work. I'm against the way that it's coercive and the way that it's, uh, that it's done right now. Yeah. That it's coercive and that it's like sort of pointless in a lot of ways. Like as far as like your own edification goes, I think that maybe, uh, Bookchin makes this distinction. He calls, he like differentiates between work and toil. And he talks about what we do nowadays is more like toil. Cause we kind of just have to be there for a set amount of time in order to be rewarded for our efforts instead of doing the work and getting done what needs to be done for somebody else and then heaven forbid we go off and enjoy the rest of our time yeah exactly like uh what did mark say like you know study philosophy in the morning garden in the afternoon and fish in the evening or something one of the more interesting things about uh you know living at this time in history that we are that it seems closer than ever to just be like Let's just get rid of a lot of this stuff. Like, we don't need, like, honestly, my job should be an open source job. Like, the work that I do, I, I, you know, my programming should just be me doing it for fun, filling the needs of the real things that need to be done. Um, and a lot of programming is redundancy. A lot of it is 
businesses making the same product over and over and over uh, and not actually solving problems because they're just chasing money. And I think that's that's become very apparent as we've shifted into largely service-oriented industry that is like, we just have programming and service now. Like, we don't really have a lot of manual labor jobs. They're all outsourced. I mean, that's part of the problem, too. They're all sent to other countries so they can deal with capitalism not being able to handle that. But um, if we if we took all of this stuff and just kind of like flattened it out, got rid of tons of this. And this is, I think, what was really great is that in this fragments paper, you can see where Graeber is talking about the things he wishes people would write about. And then later you see the books that he wrote, like Debt and like Bullshit Jobs, where he talks about this kind of stuff, where it's like, why do we have all this finance in all this, all the finance sector that ends up being just a waste of time, just a complete waste of time to make numbers move around and track things that don't really benefit us, don't really make our lives better, like in a material way. Yeah. He talks about finance. He talks about advertising. Oh, yeah. And he also talks about, I thought this was interesting, jobs that only exist because we work too much. <laughs> so things like all night pizza delivery or dog walkers, right? Like jobs that wouldn't need to exist if we weren't at work all day mm -hmm. and all night. And so his overall point is like, it's it really is realistic that we could be, if nothing else, like working far fewer hours a week. And he points out how, in fact, that's actually happening in a lot of other countries. You know, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Germany has a 35-hour work week. Um, but, you know, the average American, if I'm not mistaken, before the uh, pandemic was working like more than 40 hours a week, like closer to 50 hours a week. So we're particularly bad about it. Yeah, it's too many. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's strange because of the way that we've tied this, the Protestant work ethic We've tied that so strongly to what work is, to where we don't we no longer really think of it as work is done to produce things to make people's lives better. Work is done to make sure that we are fed, to make sure that we can get around, that we communicate. Those are the basic things that work does. But we think of it as you work a lot to produce. Like you just that's just flattened out into that, right? So that we end up with these 50-hour work weeks and we feel it feels a bit like well, what would happen if we didn't do that? We wouldn't, obviously wouldn't produce as much, which also not as obvious. It doesn't really follow <laughs> that you wouldn't produce as much. Uh, there was a study, I think that Microsoft did, it might've been in Japan, where they let um, their, for like uh, a period, like a quarter or something. I think everyone had a four day work week, normal, regular eight hour days or whatever, uh, same pay. They ended up producing the same amount, doing the same amount of work, felt better, had more time with their families, um, and then Microsoft said, interesting, and just went back to normal $5 days. But um, it was... <laughs> no conclusions can be drawn yeah. here. <laughs> oh, that's that's cool. Maybe we'll think about it some more is all they did. But it it was a thing that was going around at my job before I got laid off a while ago. Where, yeah, I was like really trying to push that when I saw my, my coworker was talking about it. I was like, yeah, four-day work weeks. Let's do this. Like, there's no reason. But yeah, that I think we have a, a serious issue where we've conflated the amount of work with the amount of production, even though it doesn't correlate and it doesn't really track. And we've made the straw man, I guess. I don't know, it's not straw. I don't know the right word for it. We've made, we made some kind of a fallacy of it that we've said, you know, if we, if we were to change this, everything falls apart. I, I think partly stemming from the idea of, well, if it wasn't necessary, why would we do it? 
Yeah, definitely. That what exists must necessarily exist. What about democracy? I'm glad you asked, Alicia. So uh, my favorite thing about this section on democracy, um, and I I put it out in a tweet the other day, but did not do numbers, uh, is that uh, <laughs> voting is very anti-democratic. Oh, well, that's that's a that's a hot take. <laughs> that's a hot take. Yeah. So what uh, Graeber is talking about when he talks about democracy and what, in my experience, a lot of anarchists mean when they uh, talk about democracy and also, in my experience, don't do a good job of explaining to other people this is what they mean, uh, is like a consensus sort of democracy, which is like, it's as opposed to like majoritarian. So in a majoritarian democracy, whatever side gets 51% of the vote wins and 49% of people are pissed off. And uh, so this is what he's talking about with voting being anti-democratic. And of course, that's just with two sides. It could be that 30% of people are happy. You know, and uh, for, you know, forty percent of people are mad or whatever. What about the other thirty percent? They they just sat out. Did they not add up to a hundred? <laughs> in this in this case, it's only seventy percent for some reason. <laughs> but uh, everybody else is busy working. Yeah, exactly. They're, yeah, ca- they're counting like votes. Voter turnout. <laughs> All right. Now I feel like I've gotten off track a little here. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah so instead of having like half or more of people be upset with a situation uh you do like a consensus decision where everybody's happy um or and i don't know if it was in this work but i've heard graber call it uh consent democracy which i like a little better because when you talk to people about consensus you, the first thing you'll hear immediate pushback is like oh, that would take forever we'd never get anything done there's always going to be someone who's not happy and, you know, there's a little bit of truth in that, you know, it would be kind of like ridiculous to try to get every single person on board 100% with every single decision. And so what he means by consent democracy is like you come to a conclusion as a group through discussion, you know, not through voting, through like talking and working it out that basically nobody's super upset with. Everybody can live with it. You know, maybe some people it's not their favorite, but at least it's, you know, not the thing they really wanted to avoid. Yeah. And I think it actually is very good for, it kind of assumes that everybody's acting in good faith, right? Majority democracy assumes kind of this, everybody must have different opinions or at least we're split 50, 50 or some amount. And the other person's opinion is just so contradictory to mine that uh, if I win and they lose and they're mad about it, oops, sorry, like mine is the better opinion, obviously, because everybody voted for it. But like a consent kind of system, you kind of come at it with more good faith where you're like, well, you know, I'm willing to hear you out and I'm willing to, you know, let's talk about it. Let's try to get somewhere that we can both agree. Or if you don't care, you can just say, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> like do whatever you want. Yeah, Exactly. I recently heard a real life example of this idea of consent consensus. Uh, I don't know if it's quite democracy, but um, it was recently the 35th. It was recently the 35th anniversary of the Challenger crash. And apparently um, the way that the rocket was designed and I, Absolutely not a pro on this, but apparently the way the rocket was designed with O-rings and whatever, like it needed to 
operate at a particular temperature and the temperature in Florida is typically warm, but the night before it was too cold and the engineers knew this and knew that there would be potential issues with it. And so in order for um, that rocket to launch, you needed a hundred percent agreement that like, yes, we are going to launch this thing tomorrow. But allegedly the engineers were like, nah, like, you can't do that tomorrow. The thing is going to explode. But um, the bureaucrats and stuff were like, oh, but we planned it. And the school children are waiting. And like, the media is here and all of this. Um, ask them how that went in the end. But I think that's pretty not relevant to the entire discussion. But it's where my mind went. It feels like that's a, kind of a, a, an overlap of like hierarchy and consensus, right? Where like they started out with the intent of like, well, let's get consensus. And then when they couldn't, they're just like, well, I'm in charge. <laughs> so I guess uh, I don't care. Yeah. Which is interesting, right? Because that ties back to the man with the stick we were talking about earlier. Like in a way you couldn't have majoritarian voting without the man and the stick to beat the 49% into line. And so that's what all these things kind of have in common is uh, this idea of sort of like simplifying complex social situations. You know, we have to like acknowledge that we're living in these in society with a bunch of other, you know, agents and actors. And they're like, we have to somehow find a way that works for all of us. And when that gets too complicated, people like to just grab a big stick and say, actually, just do what I say. And that is exactly what anarchists don't like. So I think with that out of the way, it might be a good time to find out uh, if we are anarchists. <laughs> we're just going to go through this really quickly. I'm not sure exactly how we're doing on time here, um, but it's a short essay. It's called, Are You an Anarchist? The Answer May Surprise You by David Graeber. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend you do. But what we're going to do is he poses a couple of questions in here uh, to decide whether you're an anarchist or not. And we're just going to go through them one by one. It is also available, I believe, on Audible Anarchist. It's a pretty short recording, like 12 minutes or something. So first question. If there's a line to get on a crowded bus, do you wait your turn and refrain from elbowing past others, even in the absence of police? Well, I know I do. Uh, it depends on how strong they look. <laughs> <laughs> how much of a hurry I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, What? what is that? Uh uh, there's some joke about, you know, like there should be lanes of traffic for people that are more important or whatever. It's just like, <laughs> which is kind of like what the uh, charge, the toll lanes are for, for carpools when they become just toll lanes. It's just like, oh, I'm able to pay my way <laughs> to go fast. Yeah. No, seriously. But uh, yeah, this, I think this is a really good question um, where he says the most basic anarchist principle is self-organization the assumption that human beings do not need to be threatened with prosecution in order to be able to come to reasonable understandings with each other or to treat each other with dignity and respect. But of course, what people will say is that like, well, I know I'm not going to elbow in line, but like other people will. And he points this out. He says, of course, everyone believes that they're capable of behaving reasonably. It's always other people that are the problem. Um, but of course, you know, those other people are thinking that they're the reasonable ones and you're the problem. And like, spoiler alert, Everybody's like generally pretty reasonable. There are some people who aren't, but they're the outliers. Alicia, where do you come in on this question? Or do you push people down regularly or like, I'm 50 Yeah, I know. Your silence speaks volumes <laughs> here. <laughs> no, I'd say I, I definitely used to be a pusher. You know, I played rugby in high school, so I was always <laughs> looking for an excuse to tackle somebody. But 
I've definitely mellowed out in my age. <laughs> I'd say no. <laughs> the idea of like, oh, I, I, I wouldn't do it, but everyone else, that they, they use the same excuse around money and the idea of you be I, you know, like, well, I have great ideas of what I would do with my money, but everyone else would just spend it on alcohol <laughs> or whatever. And uh, it's all bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Turns out people are reasonable and just want to survive and probably for the most part not really hurt each other. Yeah, and the um the inverse with with the people that have money like billionaires where they're just like, "Oh no, like they're doing really good things. They must be because I can imagine how could you not right. be? How could you it must be something else getting in the way of them spending the money on people. Uh it's probably not greed and power." Uh so I think that's an interesting like it's weird because it's just like, well, we can't give people $20, but billions of dollars that they've stolen from laborers. That makes sense. Like, Because the folks at the bottom are always imagining what it must be like and, and coming up with excuses for folks on top just like that. We, we did just talk mm. about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're really tying this all together. Go us. <laughs> all right. So that's question one, right? So everyone following along at home, you can ask yourself, do you push people down to get on the bus? And if you don't, you might be an anarchist. Let's let's find out. There's more to know. But first off, self-organization, very important. So if you don't push past other people to get on the bus, you already know all about self-organization and how important it is in order to maintain common good and decency in the world. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you just apply those same principles to international trade, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, but that's a really good point because self-organization sounds so much like Okay, so like people are getting together to to vote on who gets on the bus first. Like it doesn't it sound crazy, but then when you see it in practice, like as a bus line, it's just like no. As you show up, you get into the back of the line. I, I've often, you know, when you get to the line, you're like, "Is this start? Where do I go?" Like I don't want to cut. I don't want to be that guy, right? So I feel like most people don't want to be that person. That's like, no, I'm just here to get on the bus. Fuck you. Since I mentioned sports, the next question talks about sports. It says, are you a member of a club or a sports team or any other voluntary organization where decisions are not imposed by one leader, but made on the basis of general consent? I feel like this one's a little weird because of the whole... Uh, it's very specific and we're in a pandemic, yes. Yeah, and the, the whole bowling alone <laughs> thing. I, I don't know if you've heard about that, but about how like people just don't aren't part of groups anymore. But I've, I've heard this question posed alternatively, which is like, how do you and a group of friends decide what movie to see, right? Mm. like and like the idea is like you can like you are capable of making decisions without somebody being in charge and even sometimes uh somebody might you know just make a decision because everyone is like i don't know i don't care and just somebody saying like well i think we should say this we'll just do that that's not necessarily like they're in charge it's just like you know consent it's basically everyone said i don't care enough somebody else can care more and then somebody does yeah, or, you know, like there's a discussion like, oh, I want to see this one. Well, I really don't want to see this one, but I like this one. Okay, I'm down with that one. I can see that one. Yeah, I'm working out times and when does it work for people? Uh, and, you know, uh, some people might be like, well, I, I can drop out. I don't really care that much, that sort of thing. And and it doesn't come to blows. It doesn't come to blows and it doesn't come to like, you know, somebody just saying, well, I'm just making a unilateral decision and everyone gets upset and goes along with it. <laughs> Uh, usually if they're going along with it, it's because they're like, that's fine. Yeah. He says, every time you reach an agreement by consensus rather than threats, every time you make a voluntary arrangement with another person, 
or reach a compromise by taking due consideration of the other person's particular situation or needs, you're being an anarchist, even if you don't realize it. And I kind of love this next line. Anarchism is just the way people act when they're free to do as they choose and when they deal with others who are equally free and therefore aware of the responsibility to others that entails. Yeah, I have here. While people can be reasonable and considerate when they're dealing with equals, human nature is such that they cannot be trusted to do so when given power over others. Given someone such pow- Give someone such power, they will almost invariably abuse it in some way or another. And that kind of leads into the, re- the next question. So question number three is, do you believe that politicians are selfish, egotistical swine who don't really care about the public interest? Do you think we live in an economic system which is stupid and unfair? Which is like, yeah, of course, let's move on. (laughs) 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 But really, though, I mean, like, it's, I don't know, like, you talk to almost anybody and they'll tell you that politicians are lying and that they're greedy and that, you know what I mean? Like, they under, people understand this. And most, they've sort of been beaten into being like, but that's the way it is. Yeah. And I think even the most, uh, you know, um, um, fair or like, uh, what's the word? The, The most fair way you could look at it would be like oh well they're just doing their best but other people are in the way or something you know like this seems to be kind of like the democratic party's story is like they're just like the underdog that can't seem to catch a break when they have a majority but anyway um (laughs) yeah and and uh i i I think that's the, the thing about this question that that struck me is like this feels very right wing even though I think it's very nonpartisan, this idea that politicians are interest are really only interested in themselves, because it seems very evident. Yeah, I think what it is is it's libertarian, and especially in the U.S., we sort of just think of libertarian as right wing. You know what I mean? And like the quote yeah. unquote left are like the big government Democrats. Yeah, kind of yeah. I'm putting a weird, my own weird. Uh, liberal look or we're like i guess american centric yeah look just, at, uh how yeah i was gonna say it's just very american it's just a very american way of seeing things i i always like to say that americans are kind of like folk libertarians like even people that aren't very involved in politics have sort of a sense of like don't tell me what to do uh which i think is kind of noble <laughs> you're not gonna yeah, hear me they, say too many good things about americans on this show but there's one <laughs> I think there's like a weird thing though, right? Like that butts up against, we're going through a problem right now in the US where people won't wear masks and they don't seem to care about like basic science. And so we can't seem to get general consensus on this. Um, And you know what? They're coming from a (laughs) person. Oh, I was just going to say, I see this as like a a society that's been taught not to care about each other. And uh, then, you know, the way that they try to get us to wear masks is they say, like, you have to. And so, of course, of course, Americans are like, oh, I have to, do I? <laughs> you know, oh, I'll I'm show not saying you. it's a good thing. I'm just saying, like, I don't know. You know, like, uh, there's a way of getting people to do it because they want, you know, you want to, you care about other people rather than getting them to do it by, like, again, beating them, beating it into them. Yeah. Alicia, what's the mass discourse like in, in Canada? <laughs> yeah, Alicia's like, what the hell? <laughs> oh, no, it's it's a fucking train wreck up here, too. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, uh, Graeber writes that, uh, of this point that anarchists believe that power corrupts 
and those who spend their entire lives seeking power are the very last people who should have it. I think that seems like a very reasonable way to look at the world. Uh, it does not, it, it seems that, it seems true, it seems like it bears out. I read somewhere, like when I was sort of a baby anarchist, and it's kind of a baby anarchist thing to say, but it's like, if you can't, if people can't be trusted, so you need a government to tell them what to do, then how come people are the ones that make up that government? Well, this is, I guess, then where you get into like more of like a technocracy and this belief that, like, well, you know, the right people in charge along with technology will solve that problem somehow. We will just like, kind of like work it out uh which is a weird a weird way to to think that we're just going to like figure out how to stop making power corrupt people by making sure the right people are there and yeah, we totally. do something <laughs> unclear yeah i actually want to go i think i'm going to segue into not the next question but i'm going to skip over that come back to it later because i think what you just said goes well with the the last question which is do you believe that human beings are fundamentally corrupt and evil or that certain types of people for instance, women, people of color, ordinary folk who aren't rich or educated, are inferior specimens destined to be ruled by their betters? And so, no, I don't think so. You know, <laughs> I don't think that there's a class of people that don't know what they're doing and a class of people that do know what they're doing. And we just got to put the do-nos in charge. I agree. <laughs> I do not think that that is the case. I don't think especially, uh, you know, as, as I've really started to understand the world more and that people are kind of just like me, just with different experiences, but they're not different people, right? They're not alien beings or something. Uh, yeah. They're not like, you know, I can't really understand my cat, but I can understand somebody in, in a different country pretty well because they probably see the same sunrise, eat, eat, eat food that's similar to me, you know, same kinds of food, I guess. Um, and it's just like, they kind of experience the same kind of problems in day to day. And so when you start seeing it from that perspective, it's a lot easier to understand, like, nope, there's not like people that are just inherently better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We all put on our pants one leg at a time. This kind of ties back for me, uh, to the beginning of the fragments essay again. And I think there was a, I don't know if it was a Kropotkin quote, but Kropotkin was, Kropotkin was mentioned, um, it was about anarchism versus Marxism and how anarchism is kind of just this like nebulous like series of ideas about how to be a good person in the world in a way that mutually assures not just your survival, but the survival of everyone around you. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that it's not like a dogma. Like it is just to repeat a quote I said a moment ago just the way people act when they're free to do as they choose and when they deal with others who are equally free. So like anarchism is not like a certain, any particular specific set of practices. It's just how free people act among each other when there's nobody that has a big stick. I, I saw somebody talking about today that at least, you know, anarchism, which it might be because it's kind of like a simplistic ideology, right? It's, it's very like just doing to others sort of thing. Um, but they said that, uh, you know, of everything else that they've kind of thought through and experienced, anarchism is the most consistent. Like, it's just easy to understand what you should do in a certain situation because it's pretty much always going to be like, 
just do the right thing. Like you don't have to wonder about, well, what if they get too much? What if, you know, shouldn't we means test? Or like, what if this person's bad inherently? Like this <laughs> yeah. weird, like all these weird uh, things that you have to jump through. Instead, you just look at it from the point of view of like, no, everybody deserves everything, right? Everybody deserves freedom. And to just, if we work together, we can achieve that. Yeah. If, if, the, moose, if the moose wants a muffin, just give it to him. You don't have to worry about what comes next. What? I don't even know what that means. <laughs> no, damn. I was really hoping somebody would catch that. There's a, it's there's a, a child's book. book, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. If you give it's a, a moose a muffin. <laughs> the moose? Uh, is, it, is, it, is, it is it from the Mouse of Cookie book? Oh, is yeah. It it's like that? by the same author. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I've never heard of this. It's like the, the evil twin or something. <laughs> no, it's just the spiritual sequel. <laughs> right. That makes sense. That same, makes a lot more same sense. Same Don't give people stuff. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I honestly barely remember. I just know it's about giving mouses cookies. Is it? Yeah. Is, it is the moral of the book to not do that? <laughs> the moral is if you give people stuff, they're just going to want more and more. So don't ever give oh, anybody man. anything. Oh, that's a wonderful thing to teach children. Yeah, it's a terrible children's book. <laughs> so do you really believe those things that you tell your children or that your parents told you? Apparently, if it's the cookie one, a lot of people believe that. <laughs> but what about... It's hard not to. Like, it takes conscious and critical thinking and experience in order to not believe the things that you are fundamentally told as a child. Yeah. But th then this is the, the final question, right, of the, of the, of the quiz. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The question we skipped over says, do you really believe those things that you tell your children that your parents told you? And to be honest, that question kind of confused me a little bit because you do tell your children at least a couple things that you should continue believing. But does someone else want to expand on this one? Sure. Well, maybe it'll be helpful. Right after he asked the question, he gives some examples of what he's talking about. So he says, do you really believe those things you told your children, such as, it doesn't matter who started it, two wrongs don't make a right, clean up your own mess, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, don't be mean to people just because they're different. Completely leaves, leaves out the cookie, the mouse. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's interesting, right? Because maybe it's in this section. But yeah, all right, here we go. He says, in fact, that mo most children grow up believing in anarchist morality, but gradually have to realize that the adult world doesn't really work that way. And I don't know, my sort of less nice way of saying that is they kind of have to have it beat out of them, right? They kind of got to like read the mouse in the cookie book every, every night. Like, hey, don't just go giving people stuff. Don't go being nice in the real world. It's all well and good in children's books, but... Yeah, like I can you imagine a daycare where they're like separating children and being like, no, I'm sorry, this Billy, Billy, you know, I don't know, he's rich. I don't know what would be the differentiator between babies, but it would be like <laughs> Billy's Billy got gets the time. blocks, so he doesn't have to share them. They're his right. blocks he got, now. Yeah, <laughs> he got here first. I don't know what to tell you. It's all against all. <laughs> I, that'd, be a, that'd be a great sketch. Libertarian daycare, just like <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah, get the wrong boys on the phone. Yeah, so this last question, I think that it's it's a good one to save for last because it's a little bit like, all right, you know, it's a little too cute by half. But I think the point is uh is well well made. You know that these th these ideas like it's good to share and like don't be mean to people and clean up your own messes and do unto others and stuff like there there's no reason that those things have to be seen as childish. Like they are seen as childish because like the world 
the adult world doesn't work that way. But, you know, the adult world could work any way we wanted it to. And if anything, that is the sort of connecting thread, I think, of all of Graver's work is like, just get it in your head that things can be basically any way we want them to be. Like there's nothing that is, there's nothing about capitalism and there's nothing about statism and there's nothing about hierarchy that are inherent. And on that note, thanks for listening to Works in Theory podcast this week. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for following along. This has been, I think, a a pretty good couple of episodes here on David Graeber. Normally, I think this is where we would plug the next work we're doing, but we're not planning that far ahead. Come on. Yeah, and you can send us, if you took if you took the quiz, you can send us your answers. And maybe you can quibble about things uh, with the Works Theory Pod Twitter. Uh, Nate runs that, so I'm willing to allow you to do that. Anyone has <laughs> qu- problems with how, how we've done this, you can just yell at that Twitter handle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's once again, that is at Works Theory Pod on Twitter.com. We also have a Facebook and an Instagram. Uh, I believe that the name of those two are just Works in Theory Podcast. Yeah, don't go there looking for anything. Uh, go to Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> our producer and editor is Forrest Frieder, and our theme song is by Wolg. So thanks, everybody. Have a good week. Communism works. In theory.